If you've experienced a DNA surprise, you know that your emotions can range from shock to denial to grief to anger to confusion to joy and around again. And sometimes it's hard to find people who understand this unique experience. Sometimes we feel a little stuck as we navigate this journey. That's why we created the DNA Surprise Retreat. At the DNA Surprise Retreat, you'll enjoy six expert-led sessions to help you process your DNA surprise. You'll eat delicious catered meals, and most importantly, you'll build beautiful friendships with people who understand you, all in a stunning private ranch facility in the Arizona desert. If you've had shocking DNA test results, know that you're not alone. This retreat is for you. Join us September 19th through the 22nd, 2024 in Phoenix, Arizona. Registration is open now. Reserve your space at dnasurpriseretreat.com. I'll see you there. I mean, I really think that we just try to build bigger, fuller, meaningful lives around the things that have happened to us that hurt and that it's okay. And it actually makes quite a bit of sense that those things still make us sad. In this very special bonus episode of DNA Surprises, I'm joined by Megan Irwin, who will be facilitating a session on trauma at the DNA Surprise Retreat. Megan is a licensed therapist specializing in grief and loss, trauma, PTSD, and associated challenges. She serves as a compassionate witness and guide for her clients' healing and personal growth. Megan will facilitate a session called Big T, Little T on how DNA surprise traumas affect our bodies and minds. She'll also empower us with tools to manage the big feelings we experience following our surprises. In our conversation, we discuss what trauma is, why there are different labels for trauma, and recommendations for coping. She even shows me how to be more compassionate for myself and my own healing journey. We all have things to learn. Thank you so much for joining me today, Megan. Of course, it's wonderful to be here. Megan is going to host a session on trauma at the DNA Surprise Retreat in May. And so we thought it would be great to have her on the podcast today to share more about trauma and go over a little bit of what we're going to discuss at the retreat. So Megan, can you tell me a little bit about your background? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the pod and for inviting me to join you at the retreat and share what I know about trauma with the folks that will be attending the retreat. I am a mental health therapist. I'm a clinical social work associate, and I specialize in working with people who have experienced trauma and are working toward recovering from it. Uh, I'm also a trauma survivor myself. And so this is a topic that I feel really passionate about. I'm always excited to share what I know from lived experience and clinical experience with folks. Um, do want to make clear that the conversation we're having today is probably going to be pretty high level. It's not meant to be 
uh, like clinical advice or direction for any of your listeners, maybe a jumping off point for folks that want to go learn more about the topic on their own. But anyone who's experiencing really distressing, intrusive mental health symptoms definitely needs to uh, seek out support from somebody that can work with them directly. This is not a substitute for therapy. This is just kind of our conversation about a component of the DNA surprise experience. Thank you for that disclaimer. (laughs) Sorry for the the professional disclaimer, but Um, Hopefully we didn't just scare people away. This should be an interesting convo. No, I'm really excited to have this conversation. And I think it's important to recognize that we do have these amazing resources through podcasts, books, retreats, all of those things, but none of them are a substitute for clinical support with a licensed professional who is licensed in your state to provide Mm -hmm. services (laughs) to you. Um, And then I will just add um, a side note, full disclosure, that Megan is my best friend of about 15 years, I think, Mm -hmm. at this point. I have been so lucky in my DNA surprise journey to be surrounded by amazing people, including Megan, who have supported me through this. And she's seen firsthand how much it has affected me. And while she's not my therapist, you've really provided some excellent advice to me, especially in the beginning, as I was just trying to navigate my journey. So, well, it's been an honor to be your friend all these years and then to be a trusted person that's been able to be there for you in this. And I have to say, I've learned a lot from you watching your journey with this as a friend, but also as a a trauma professional. Um, This is an area of work that we're really not trained in. Um, It's made me want to seek out further training and working with DNA surprises and identity surprises. Uh, It's not something that a lot of mental health professionals are trained in. And I've just learned a lot from you and from your community getting to be with you in this. Well, thank you for being willing to learn and open to learn. As I mentioned, um, Megan's session is called Big T, Little T, and it is on trauma. And I think trauma is... I don't want to call it a buzzword, but it's very popular now. We're seeing it a lot on social media. There's a lot of discussion around trauma, but I'd like to start with the basics. Sure. What is trauma? How do you define it? So, of course, there is in the diagnostic manual that we use, like a, there's actually, there's only one diagnosable disorder that has the word trauma in it, post-traumatic stress disorder. Lots of debate about that. And it has a long list of diagnostic criteria associated with it. But I really kind of break trauma down to anything that overwhelms your ability to cope. When your ability to cope with whatever is occurring in your current reality overwhelms you, there's a series of things that happen to you emotionally and biologically in your nervous system that are overwhelming and can lead to the kind of intrusive symptoms that make the long laundry list of symptoms um, in the clinical diagnostic criteria. And the other thing I think about when it comes to trauma, and we'll get more into this when we talk about like, are there different kinds of trauma? I think about it as both what you experience and what you don't experience. So what you experience may be an acute event, a car accident, an assault, a DNA surprise, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, unexpected death of a loved one. That's an that's an experience, right? That can be traumatic. Those experiences are 
not all always traumatic for people. It's really, again, like is your ability to cope overwhelmed or not? But I also think of trauma as what we don't experience. Growing up, did you not experience feelings of love and comfort and nurturance from your caregiver? Did you not experience affirmation of your self-identity? That's an absence of a thing that we, Mm -hmm. it's an absence of connection that we need as people um, to develop a strong and healthy self-concept. And that can also be a form of trauma. So it's anything that overwhelms your ability to cope and it can be a thing you experience or it can be something that we actually need as human beings that you don't experience, the lack of something. I really like that way of describing it. And in the DNA surprise community, I think we see a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the DNA surprise itself can be a traumatic event, that acute event, like what you were saying. But then... There are layers, definitely, with the people that I've talked to on the podcast where, you know, sadly, we hear these stories of, you know, children who weren't told that they were loved or never saw that genetic mirroring, never mm-hmm. felt like they fit in and all of those things. So that's really interesting. Yeah, it's really layered. And I think that's what can make a DNA surprise experience so complicated and so challenging to figure out, like, where to start the road to recovery from because it is complex and it's both an event and then often an acute sort of lack of something leading up to Mm -hmm. that event, which is what we would call complex PTSD. And so, you know, you kind of get that combo of an event that is traumatizing in and of itself. And then the complexity of not having needs met, which leads to a, challenging self-concept for a lot of people or a sense of like not being enough, not being lovable. Then you get those two things combining and it's kind of a complex clinical picture to treat, but it is treatable. Recovery is totally possible. It's just like you said, layered, right? It's not going to necessarily be like a short, simple road to figuring out what comes next. Mm -hmm. Has everyone experienced trauma? I kind of, I think it depends on your lens on it. So for me, I think that trying to survive, not to get political, right, but like trying to survive in late stage capitalism in a society where so many of our basic needs for so many of us are not met, like that mm-hmm. is inherently traumatic. Or if you are a person Um, that holds a marginalized identity or uh, has a medical illness or a disability and you're trying to survive in a society where um, the society is not built for you, like that can be inherently traumatic for many people. So if you sort of take that macro lens on it, you can sort of think, yeah, like most people probably have experienced some form of chronic overwhelming stress that has Mm -hmm. shaped their self-identity in a way that isn't helpful to them. But has everybody experienced trauma? I don't think so. I've met people who have, who don't identify as having experienced trauma. There's lots of people wandering out around in the world that are like securely attached and their needs were met as children and they have not experienced an acute event that's been traumatic for them. So not everyone has experienced it. It's really just how do you define it for yourself, I think. 
Yeah. I think that's a huge piece of it, right? Is how do we feel about the things that have happened to us? Because I think there are some people that have had DNA surprises that do not define them as traumatic events. Um, But I think most of the people that I've spoken to, at least, and within the community that I've connected with, do define it, you know, as as something that is greatly traumatic, right? Right. It rocks your sense of self. Well, think about, I just want to like, because sort if you sort of go off of like trauma as being what we experience and what we don't experience, an adverse event, and then the lack of connection, support, nurturance, belonging, that shapes self-concept that impacts the nervous system that can create intrusive symptoms that add up to a clinical trauma diagnosis, right? The level of support that occurs during and after, especially immediately after a trauma, also really impacts how much it winds up being a factor in our life over the long term. So it may be that some of the folks that you've talked to that had a DNA surprise had this thing happen and then were met with the love and the support and the belief and the listening that they needed in that moment to process it and have the full stress response and integrate it and have Mm -hmm. it not sort of linger. Right. And then those folks probably also like grew up with, you know, good enough situations where their needs were enough met and they felt enough took care of taken care of. Right. That makes sense. So it's like a horrible thing can happen in your life and it does not have to turn into PTSD. If there are interventions Mm -hmm. in place early on, or if you're met with the kind of nurturance that is needed to fully process the thing that's happened. One of the things I really admire about your approach is it's so hopeful. (laughs) Otherwise (laughs) you just want to take a nap and cry. Yeah. I know. Which is fine if you need to. (laughs) That's a great coping mechanism (laughs) at times, right? I love a nap. But yeah, I think um, this idea that getting the support, working through it is, is integral to integrating the, the event, you know, into your life, into your identity and being able to move forward in a really healthy way. Um, I just really like that perspective because, you know, in this, in this DNA surprise community, we have experienced these major events, but I like the idea that they don't have to completely define us Mm -hmm. and that we can heal and, and move forward. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. So, um, I'm really curious about how trauma shows up for people. So like what are symptoms, mm-hmm. I guess, as, as you were mentioning before, that there are symptoms yeah. of trauma. What are some of those that people who've had a DNA surprise might experience or exhibit? It can look, so it'll look different depending on, again, your history of trauma prior to your DNA surprise and also the sort of go-to response or responses that you have learned through either through your DNA surprise experience or through prior experiences um, keep you the most safe or the most protective, right? So we think of like trauma responses. um, I think of them as protective responses as fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, right? And those are the ways that we tend to figure out how to respond to an overwhelming situation to try to regulate ourselves and keep ourselves safe. And every response 
to a traumatic event, no matter how maladaptive it may appear to society or might actually be like harmful to the person is an attempt to regulate the nervous system back down to like a tolerable level of stress. So most people kind of have a go-to one and the symptoms for that can look a little bit different depending on, depending on the one. So for people that go kind of to flight, which is like movement away from the bad thing, from the overwhelming thing, that can look like a lot of panic, fear, excessive worry, excessive concern, rumination. Like if you ever just get stuck in a loop, a loop of worry and concern that you can't get out of. People that move to fight, which is sort of movement toward the problem, um, tend to feel a lot of anger, irritation, frustration, whatever behaviors are associated with those feelings for you. It's really going to depend on the person. But um, mm. those are the feelings that tend to go with those responses. And those responses take place in our sympathetic nervous systems. So what you might be feeling in your body, if you go to fight or flight, even if you don't necessarily connect with the, your feelings really well, these are folks that will tend to feel their heart rate really elevated, feel a lot of uh, adrenaline, the blood pressure kind of goes up because you're operating in this like sympathetic part of your nervous system. Mm. I would say that like people who fawn also kind of hang out there and their feelings are going to be worry and anxiety, but also about like, is everybody mad at me? But also a lot of appeasement strategies. Like how can I people mm. please? How can I try and ingratiate myself to people so that they'll like me? And there's a lot of like shame, like feelings of, um, shame. And then, then um, there are also folks that go into a freeze response, which can feel often like a complete bodily shutdown. So these are folks that tend to get really numb, uh, feel really trapped, feel really helpless. Um, these are folks that tend to have really strong disassociative skills. So that feeling of like shutting down and just emotionally, or even sometimes it can feel like physically leaving the situation physically what you're going to feel if you're kind of a, a freeze shut down sort of person is like your body feeling tingly limbs feeling immobilized feeling really cold things like that mm -hmm. um, and we're all capable of experiencing all of these it's really like usually we have tested them all out at one time or another and have learned this strategy of response works to keep me as safe as possible when I'm overwhelmed. And so we usually have one or two that become a go-to. Yeah. As you were going through these, I found myself identifying with little nuggets from each one. Yeah. We all have all of them. Yeah. And I think, you know, personally with my DNA surprise specifically, I was surprised that I really went into the freeze. Uh, that's actually not one that i typically would say that I identify with. I think that initial aftermath, I really felt that freeze feeling. And then later on, I probably had a little more of the fight. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it is really interesting to observe well, let me, just the different responses. Let me ask you this. Like, okay, so I typically am a fawner. And then if that doesn't work, I'll fight you. That mm -hmm. has more to do with like chronic ongoing um, relational needs and emotional needs not being met as a kid and figuring out that's how mm -hmm. I would get attention. 
I had an acute trauma a couple a year before yours, and I too went to shut down because the thing that happened was like totally off script, yeah, right, and like I couldn't, and it was so overwhelming. There, like, there was nothing to do but disassociate to stay safe, right? And I suspect yes. the same thing might be true for you, like maybe with other things in life that flight that fight instinct is what helped you, like get your way through the world. But when you had your DNA surprise, it was so off script that it was just like, mm-hmm. what the hell? Like this can't be real. And that, exactly. th- that thought of this can't be real is very protective in those early days of trying to figure out what to do. A hundred percent. And, and I mean, you were, you were witness to it, that, that running script of, is this really mm-hmm. happening? Is this really real? Is this really real? And, and I hear that a lot from people that I talk to. Yeah. Where, you know, we can't look at ourselves in the mirror and, and all of those kinds of responses. Yeah, so, that's so yeah. natural. I would just like affirm for people that have that kind of the clinical term is like depersonalization or derealization, depending on exactly how it's presenting. Like you don't want that to continue forever. It's really disconcerting. But early mm-hmm. on, like that is so protective and it's sort of like buying you time for other parts of yourself to start to like integrate that this is real and you're going to have to do something to it but it's so overwhelming you can't you actually can't hold it 24 hours a day yeah especially if your network or your community or your family isn't like rising to hold it with you Mm -hmm. and I think Mm -hmm. what can be complicated for your community is the people that often are like the most important in the support network are the people that are causing harm because they are the people. Mm-hmm. I hope that's not too harsh to say. I would never yeah. impugn. People have so many reasons for why they keep things hidden, but it is like you're, it's usually a primary caregiver that has kept something secret that's then been discovered right. accidentally. That, that's a big loss. And so that person often isn't there to like rise to the occasion mm-hmm. to like help the NPE. Exactly. It's like, that's the person that you most need support from. And they're the one that did the thing that caused the harm. Exactly. Exactly. And no, it's, I don't think it's too harsh at all because it's, it's true, you know, regardless of the intent, the yeah. impact right. is, is very hard. And oftentimes the people that I speak to, their mothers aren't able to support them for whatever reason, Biological fathers may not even know, so yeah. that's not somebody to lean on. Birth certificate fathers, you know, there's so many uh, complicated family systems involved with these kinds of things. Yeah. But I think that's exactly right. The the people that you would usually lean on during these times are are the ones that have, even though we have compassion, or I personally have a lot of compassion for people that make those choices. I, I think there's a lot of shame and stigma for women. And that's part of what leads to these DNA surprises. Yes. Ultimately, yes. it is still very painful and difficult for their children. Yeah. So yeah. And I, yeah. I kind of think about it in the grief world. Are you familiar with like the grief circle? No. Okay. So there's a model of like grief recovery where um, you can think about it as as like the loss that occurs is at the middle of the circle. And then the first circle around it are the people most directly connected with the person who was lost, like family members, right? Immediate family members, spouse or partner. And then the next circle out may be like close friends and extended family members. And the next circle out like casual acquaintances. And the model of it is all the support has to go in to the circle. <laughs> like support can never go out 
from the circle mm-hmm. and be useful. And so like you're giving support always in the direction toward the person or people like most harmed by the loss, most impacted by the grief. So if you think about it, like as an NPE, like you're at the middle of the circle and mm-hmm. all the support has to go in the direction of you. That's not to say that like mom or dad or birth certificate father, like they're all impacted hurting as well, siblings too, but they got to get their support from somebody in the next rung out. The support can't come from the NPE to the parent and be effective or in my opinion, appropriate. Like the person that is closest to the loss or the most harmed, all the resources go in their direction and it can flow through. Does that make sense? Yeah. I really like that model. That really makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I'll definitely be using that. Yeah. And you know, your mileage may vary and your ability to like navigate that in everyone's complicated family systems, but it's just a way to, to think about it. Cause I think a lot of times people in positions like you were put in and the folks that come on the podcast, there's, there's almost a position of like, you need comfort and you're also trying to provide it to mm-hmm. others or feel like guilty about the thing that you discovered when the support yeah. just needs to all be going in one flowing in one direction toward the person in the middle of the circle. Yeah, 100%. So we touched on this a little bit, um, the complex PTSD and then PTSD. And we've called your session Big T, Little T, implying that there are different types of trauma. What's the difference between a Big T trauma and a Little T trauma? Or is there a difference? Well, I think what I would say about Big T, Little T is, you know, some folks don't love the phrasing because, I, you know, I, and I get it, you know, don't want to think about like the this thing that's hurt you as like diminutive, right? But right. what I think that folks need to recognize is that um, it's only pretty recent that there's an understanding of trauma as anything that overwhelms your ability to cope and an understanding that it can be something more than an acute event. It's really only in the last 20 years that we're willing to understand that like people besides war veterans can have trauma. So this big T, little t phraseology kind of came out of the work to help people in like just the popular culture understand that there are many things that can be traumatic. It doesn't just have to be going to war or being attacked or getting in a car accident. And so if we go back to how I was sort of explaining it earlier, sometimes trauma is what we experience. It's an event. And that's typically what people sort of will categorize as a big T. It's a thing that happened. And it can also be something we didn't experience, a fundamental human need or connection that we didn't experience. Mm-hmm. And um, that is where I, you can think of it as more sort of chronic relational trauma. And that's usually what people are referring to when they refer to little T. So I understand why like there is now like some movement to push back against those markers because it's like, it's all just trauma and that's true. And there are distinct ways that you would clinically approach someone based on the type of trauma they've experienced, like my clients who have acute events and that's it. Really different sort of clinical conception as someone that has had chronic trauma, either chronically their uh, needs weren't met or they just had daily experiences of acute harmful events. My clinical Mm -hmm. uh, conceptualization of that treatment plan is going to be really different. And then some people have had both layered together and that's different. Yes. That actually does make a a lot of sense to me. It's just taken some time for people to understand that like 
neglect, which is the absence Mm. of something, right? Child neglect. Mm -hmm. It's the absence of a lot of things. And it's absolutely traumatic. And it's only been in recent years that like that started to be accepted as we've gotten more into like the neurobiology of trauma and how it actually like works in the nervous system. Um, And so, you know, I don't ever want anybody to think that like capitalization is like prioritizing or deprioritizing what they've been through. Mm -hmm. It really is just kind of like a pop psychology way of translating the concept as, as quickly as possible. And, you know, it's, I think that's still needed. Like we still complex PTSD is not in the DSM. Like I cannot diagnose Mm -hmm. my clients with it in other countries that use different diagnostic codes. Clinicians can, but we have post-traumatic stress disorder and something called acute stress disorder. And then a couple of personality disorders that I think are overused. And like, typically what we're diagnosing is chronic little T trauma. So like, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of catching up to do in there's a lot of work to do to catch up like diagnostic labels and the language we use to the science and the current understanding of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So given that, is a DNA surprise big T or little t? Well, God, I feel like I keep saying it depends, but I think it does. I think it, I does. Think it yeah. does to me, and it might not be dramatic right. to it, or mm-hmm. it may be very surprising and hurtful. And then the person is met and supported by their community. And it doesn't actually become ingrained in the nervous system and the psyche as a trauma, right? Like not everything that hurts is traumatic. Not everything that hurts Mm -hmm. changes the way our nervous system responds to that stimuli. So for some people, it might be a very painful experience that causes acute stress and a lot of sadness and And they move through it pretty seamlessly with a lot of great support. For others, it may be an acute one-time, like first-time, big, traumatic, overwhelming event that they experience. And for some people, it might be an acute event on top of a lifetime of other stressful and overwhelming experiences that have left them, you know, feeling overwhelmed and alone in this world. So it really, mm-hmm. like, I don't, I have no idea how to define it for each individual. I think it's really mm-hmm. like, if someone were to come to me with this experience, I would work with them on like trying to understand the meaning that they're making of it, the emotions associated with it. What does it mean about them? What does it mean about their safety emotionally in the world? What does it mean about the world at large? Like there's so many meaning making questions that I would have for someone first. And then we would figure out like what diagnosis to build the insurance for. <laughs> and we would figure <laughs> out how they would define the, the situation for themselves. And then we would figure out ways to start working toward building a life around it because that's how I think about recovery. I don't think about recovery as a return to a previous state. Yeah. Not possible. No. And, and I love, I really like that perspective on, you know, how do we classify DNA surprise? Because I do think it's very personal. It does depend on the circumstances of how you found out, um, how you were supported, 
what connections you were able to make or not make afterwards. Um, the circumstances of your conception, I think, can play a lot into it. Um, right. If it was an affair or something else. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned um, through my work in this space is I don't get to define how anyone feels about mm-hmm. their experiences. Yeah. And I think that that's so important. So I'm really glad that you said that. I really do think that it's the meaning we make. And it may, it's also possible for it to not feel like a big deal at first and then down the road to feel like more of a big deal or more overwhelming. And I would want to normalize that for people too. Like it may be that you have a DNA surprise and you don't feel affected by it at first. And then years later, it starts to really bother you and you want to do some work around those feelings. Like that's pretty normal too. There's also not a timeline for this stuff. Mm, Any trauma, there's no timeline for it. There's no timeline. But I'm glad that you call that out because I've noticed, you know, I've done a lot of therapy. I've done EMDR. I've done reading. I've done all the things that there are to do to kind of process this. But every now and then somebody will say something and it could be totally benign, right? But, you know, something like um, I was talking to one of my sisters and she did something and I was like, oh, you got that from dad. And just saying that, mm. I was like, ooh, and that's mm-hmm. not my dad. You know, like just those little things yeah. where it kind of brings it up again and, and you kind of get taken back to that space. So I think it is it is really validating to hear that it's not linear, stuff comes up and it's just something that we we work on. Yeah, and that sadness might also always be there. Like, I know you were like, oh, Megan, you're so hopeful, which I am. I believe in the ability to build a life around the things that have hurt us, but I don't believe that they go away. And I also don't think that that's, I don't think like never feeling hurt by it again is the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That you would still feel like a twinge or a pain in your chest when talking to your sister about that feels very mm-hmm. human to me. It doesn't feel to me like, there's more work to be done so that I never feel that twinge. Like it might always be there, but the thing is that like, that's okay. Yeah. So you don't feel it all the time. It's not Mm -hmm. taking you, you feel a lot of other things too. Right. Right. But it's not immobilizing. Mm -hmm. It's not intrusive really like in trauma work, we're trying to get the bad thing that happened or the series of bad things that happened, the harm to stop being intrusive stop having the nightmares, stop having the negative self-conception, the feelings of helplessness, the fears around being in close connection and like uh, securely attached, safe relationship with others, the anxiety, like we're trying to take whatever the intrusive collection of symptoms are and uh, reduce, or in some cases eliminate, right? Mm -hmm. That's really different than this horrible thing that happened that doesn't ever make me sad again. Right. Yes. You know, like that's, it's, it's two different things. And like <laughs> being, being human just doesn't work that way. It's like toast can never be bread again. Like it's always going to be a little bit burned <laughs> around the edges <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. As long as it's yeah. not overwhelming your ability to live your life. Yes. Yes, that's a good reminder and and good perspective. I just think people can be really hard on themselves and be like, I already did this workbook. I guess I have to do my workbook again. And it's like, well, go like revisit your skills if you need to. But 
like, there's nothing wrong with you if you're still sad about this. It's a sad. Right. Well, <laughs> and I think, you know, you reflect on a happy memory. Yes. And it's going to make you smile. Yes. If you reflect on a sad memory, it's probably not realistic for me to think that I'm just going to feel completely neutral about that. Like, it's, it's also it's a, sad. It's a sign of healing, right? Like, did you feel, like, did that then take over your month? No. What not. happened next? I just acknowledged it and uh-huh. moved on. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yay. <laughs> As your friend, that makes me tear up. Yeah, I'm so proud of you. Goosebumps. So that's, goosebumps that's the that. work, yeah. right? Like that's the evidence yeah. that like it is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know there's so much to talk about mm-hmm. on this topic and how it pertains to DNA surprises. And I, in your session, one of the things that you're going to talk about is how we kind of can work through and and regulate some of those those trauma responses. So yeah. again, this is not clinical advice, but in that immediate aftershock of a DNA surprise, what are things that people can do or should perhaps look into doing to support themselves? Yeah. So I really I think if it has impacted you to the point that you're having like intrusive behavioral health, mental health symptoms, a lot of depression, anxiety, excessive sadness, feelings of disconnection, feelings of grief and loss. I know how hard it is to find a therapist right now, but try, try to find one that I really think that this is something of an order of magnitude that some professional guidance through it is really important. Now, I'll also say that There's a lot of evidence that trauma can be healed in community. So there are other community oriented modalities of healing that folks can access to, can access support groups would be support, would be helpful, but peer support from people with similar lived experience, but a few years of healing and recovery under their belts can be really helpful. Uh, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness has peer support professionals um, that they can connect folks with. So, um, it may not be specific to like DNA surprise, but it may be a grief support peer, a depression support peer. So there's that kind of all falls in the category of like professional supports. And I do think those are important. I I realize how self-interested I might sound saying that as a therapist, (laughs) but I just think there's things that like, they're so confusing that, outside help from a trained person is really, really useful. Well, I will co-sign that because I know that I wouldn't be where I am if not for my therapist. Right. Um, yeah. Shout out, Susana. <laughs> and and then in the DNA Surprise community, there are groups like Right to Know. They hold regular Zoom meetings. NPE Friends hold Zoom meetings. There you go. There, yes. Yeah. There are That's amazing. Um, resources, Facebook groups, yes. and so on too. So I just like, yes, a, a licensed mental health professional is really important, but somebody that has lived your same experience, I also, I think that's also really important. And those kind of groups and resources can often be low cost or free. So I told I Alexis will can link to you listeners yes, to I all will. those and things. And I also but. I also want to mention too that Right to Know has a mentorship program where Amazing. they will actually pair you with someone who has had an NPE. So that's yeah. the best. Like in the grief and loss community, that's one of the biggest things. That, and I'll say like in my own trauma recovery, like that was really helpful. Um, in terms of types of therapy to seek out, 
I would encourage looking for someone who trained in treating trauma, not just trauma informed. I would really want to understand if the person has experienced treating people who have experienced a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events, chronic trauma interventions or modalities that can be really helpful are dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT. Um, I think the DBT skills are wonderful um, in learning distress tolerance and like regulation and uh, getting your nervous system back to a more regulated place so you can even figure out what to do next. You can also find lots of good videos on DBT on YouTube that teach the skills if you can't access a therapist. Uh, the other good like body-based nervous system-based intervention or modality I love is polyvagal therapy. And then when you're ready to, if you're ready to process the event itself, I strongly recommend eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy or EMDR, um, brain spotting, which is really similar to EMDR, or something called internal family systems therapy or parts work. These are all modalities that are really good at processing and trauma intervention when you're ready to do that. But DBT, mm. polyvagal, somatic work, like those are all great places to start to like build up the uh, sense of safety in yourself to process the trauma. And most therapists that are trained in trauma are going to do work with you to build a sense of inner safety and calm before we start processing your acute event anyway. So if you're, <laughs> if you meet with somebody and in one session, they want you to do EMDR, um, I would really ask them to explain that choice to you. I think I have some things that I need to Google after this because <laughs> I know that's like a laundry list. No, the, the, but that's really helpful because yeah. I think in that immediate aftermath, you don't even know where to begin. Yeah. And for me, I had you. So I was texting you like, what kind of therapist do I need to find? And you were like, grief and trauma. Yes. And that's what I found. And and that helped me so much. And since then, I have done EMDR, which I also learned about from you. And that has been incredible for taking that sting out of the event. And I will say like, okay, so I talked a little bit about DBT. One of my favorite, DBT is a kind of therapy that loves an acronym um, for anyone that's <laughs> ever done it. One of the skills I like the most is their TIP skill, T-I-P-P, that is really designed to bring down the intensity of the like body emotional reaction. So it stands for temperature, intense exercise, uh, paced breathing, paired muscle relaxation, look it up. It's kind of a, there's videos that can teach you how to do it on YouTube, but it's kind of a progression of things that you can do when you are in fight or flight or feel yourself going into shutdown that can bring you back to yourself. And the temperature one I think is so clutch. Ice pack on your forehead, lean your legs between your knees, flip your head back up really quick, keep the ice pack on there for like 60 seconds, you will most likely come back to yourself. It's I. It's my favorite way of fighting disassociation mm -hmm. in myself. And there is just something about that temperature change that can be really helpful. So if you're somebody that's like early on and you're really, really just dysregulated and discombobulated over this, look, look up the DBT tip skills and look for a therapist that can work on mm, regulating body-based reactions to stress as your starting point. This is such great advice. 
So these tips were amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us about trauma and how it affects the body. I cannot wait for your session at the retreat. I just think there's so much goodness to learn so that we can integrate these events into our lives and move forward. And we might still have those little sad moments, but that's okay because that's part of life. So thanks again for that reminder. Of course. I'm so excited to come be in community with you and your retreat attendees. If you are going to the retreat and reach out to Alexis and share more about what you might want out of it, there's a million directions to go. We're still figuring it out. And I would love to know where the jumping off point might be for the people that will be attending. And I feel really honored to get to join and be a part of it with you all to visit your community as a professional and also as a trauma survivor, but not this kind of trauma survivor. I feel like it's really special that I'm allowed to visit and spend some time sharing what I know and learning what you all know. Thanks again to Megan for joining me for this great conversation. We're going to dive much deeper into this and so much more at the DNA Surprise Retreat. If this topic resonates with you, we hope you'll join us at the retreat, May 4th through the 7th in Tucson, Arizona. You can learn more at dnasurpriseretreat.com. Until next time.